We are really excited to kick off the next episode as part of the CPO Mastery Podcast. This episode is going to be on structured product teams, and we're excited to have PJ Leonard Ducci with us, who is the Chief Product Officer of Thumbtack, and we're actually in Thumbtack's office in downtown San Francisco. PJ, great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Mel. Appreciate you coming out to visit our library here in San Francisco. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your background and what got you to where you are today. Absolutely. Um, you know, I serve as the Chief Product Officer at Thumbtack. Uh, for your listeners that, that aren't familiar with us, we're a home management platform. So we operate a dual-sided marketplace. Uh, on one side, we have customers who want to know what to do to take care of their home, when to do it, and when they need a professional uh, service provider to help them, they want to know who to hire. And on the other side of our marketplace, we have our professional services providers. Um, and these are folks that are scaling their own independent businesses and looking for a partner to help introduce them to more customers and help them scale. And as we build out that product, uh, I support the product management, data science, and design uh, functions within Thumbtack. Prior to joining Thumbtack about a year ago, uh, I spent the prior decade or so at Facebook, uh, leading a bunch of different functional teams from partnerships to product management to what we call a product group lead, which is sort of the cross-functional um, product development groups. I worked on a bunch of different types of products from payments and commerce to ads and developer platforms um, and Facebook's marketplace. And so all those experience came together for me um, and really led me to this role at Thumbtack. Quite a diverse background from Facebook and what you're doing over here. That's awesome. So you've had the opportunity to hire and develop many product managers. You know, what have you seen that sets apart the best product managers from the rest? Yeah, uh, I appreciate the question. And I'll actually generalize it to product builders. So I actually think these traits uh, for more senior folks in their, in their careers applies to um, everyone in the product development space, engineers, designers, data scientists as well. Um, you know, I really look for uh, two traits in my more senior leaders. Uh, the first is the ability to operate at all altitudes. Um, you know, one of my uh, team members the other day was explaining to me how their day started talking with the senior management team about long-term strategy. Then they moved into a bug bash with the engineers and prioritized launch blocking bugs versus uh, backlog. Um, then they moved into talk to a bunch of designers about mocks for new features and um, how the screen should flow and how the con content should feel. And then they ended the day writing slides for the uh, board meeting. And every one of these experiences throughout that person's day um, required almost speaking a different language. Um, and the greatest product builders have the ability to change altitudes multiple times in a day, multiple times in a week, and really speak all those different languages. And most importantly, it's not just enough to be effective in each of those settings. The real value comes from connecting the dots um, because the people that can speak all those languages can translate. Um, and they can drive alignment from the board all the way down to the individual engineer who's deep in the code. Uh, and when you have that level of alignment, same expectations, same direction, and everyone's rowing together, um, magic really happens there. Um, and it's a really unique role for senior product builders to play that sort of alignment and translation function. The second trait that I really value in my leaders is the ability to incept ideas into a team. Uh, you know, building products uh, is not a democracy. You don't want to design something by committee. On the flip side, it's not a dictatorship. You know, nobody wants to come in and be told what to build. People want to have confidence that what they're building will serve a customer need. And the best product leaders have the ability to 
take input from their team, synthesize it, make critical decisions, and then incept those ideas and those decisions back into the team so they feel like it's their own. Uh, you know, recently I was working with one of our product leaders and we realized that one of the teams was being more incremental. We wanted to unlock them to take bigger, bolder moves. And we brainstormed what was holding them back. And we decided that the testing structure and the goal structure they had was boxing them in too much. Now that product leader could have gone back to the team and said, we had a bunch of discussions and we've decided to change our goal structure. But they didn't take that approach. Uh, instead, they started a discussion within the team of where do we want to go? How do we take bold approaches to get there? What would we do if we didn't have any constraints? And the team came up with all these great ideas. The, the ideas um, didn't be brought to the team. They were there already. Um, but then she asked, what holds us back from doing that? And that's where the team got into, well, because we have to test this way or because our goals are structured that way, we can't do that. And she then turned around as a service to them and said, what if I were to remove those constraints? What would we do then? And by taking that approach, instead of telling them leadership has decreed that we will change our goal structure, walking them through the, the decision-making process and having them feel like the ideas are their own, um, the team was 100% behind the, the, the shift in approach. Um, and we had complete alignment. Um, and the team really felt ownership and agency in the new, the new way of working. What I got there was really being able to change the altitude and, and what you've described in the day and the life of a PM going all the way from bug bash to board presentations and be able to speak all those languages is really important. And I love that, that it's not about being uh, a dictator or it's about full consensus either. It's somewhere in the, the middle. That's great. Yeah. Getting into kind of the meat of what a lot of product leaders are interested in on, on structuring product teams. You know, something that's often top of mind for CPOs um, when they're, they're looking to build and structure their teams is around how do they structure their teams and what are your thoughts around that? So can you give some advice around that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you're operating at scale, you have to really think deeply about how you're going to divide and conquer. Um, you don't want to, I tell my teams, let's not operate like six-year-olds playing soccer. Everyone clustered around the ball where everyone trying to work on whatever the sexiest, flashiest feature is that, that's top of mind for everybody. You need to divide and conquer and really think deeply about what are all your priorities um, and how do you make sure that you're staffing against the most critical priorities consistently across your teams. Um, a critical flaw that I've fallen into and I've seen other leaders fall into when they're scaling teams is to oil the squeaky wheel. So you get more headcount from, from your leadership. You decide where you're going to put it. And you say, well, let's take our current structure. It's fixed. Figure out where things are breaking. And we'll just add some more headcount or investment there. I, I don't think this is the right approach. Uh, anytime I'm adding significant investment to the team, I try to go back to first principles and go through my uh, org design process from start to finish. And that really gives you a fresh view um, of where you should allocate your resources. So, I kind of think about it as uh, four steps in the process. So step one is to really define your autonomous unit of product development. We call it a pod here at Thumbtack. It's called a team or a squad. Um, every company has different needs, um, but I, I fundamentally find that there's something magic about creating these well-balanced, right-sized pods. Um, at Thumbtack, we start with one product manager and one engineering manager. We add on eight to 12 individual contributor engineers distributed across front end, back end, native, dub, dub, dub. 
you add one or two data scientists or analysts, depending on how data heavy the, the product area is, add one or two designers, depending on how much new front end you're building, um, and that in, then add in fractional support from content design and user research. You end up with a team of, call it 12 to 15 people. Um, this is a group of people that's big enough and has all the skills necessary to make meaningful change in your product. It's also a small enough group that they can communicate really easily and fluidly. Um, and, the, and the disciplines are distributed in a ratio to each other where everyone's fully utilized. You don't end up having one discipline running very far ahead and always waiting for another discipline to catch up. Another interesting aspect about this team size is you can actually structure that entire team to have one set of goals. And so everyone within that pod, within that team, is all aiming in the same direction um, and define success for themselves really consistently within that group. When you get to a whole company, it's, you, you need to prioritize a bunch of different things. But within that scale, you can really just focus on one or two things really consistently across all the different disciplines. So that's step one. Define your pod structure and your, get your ratios right. The next step is to carve up the work. Um, so, you know, very simple equation. You take your total investment capacity, divide it by the cost of your pod, and that tells you how many pods you can have. Save a little bit of, uh, you know, hold back a little bit for sort of interim, um, sort of what we call pillar leadership. Um, but you get a sense of how, how many slices to carve your product experience up into um, to have unique charters. There's two, real, two ways I've seen product teams carve up the world. The first is based on code base. This is very practical. You take a team and their charge is to build a specific capability or build a system within your, within your product. Um, this has advantages. Uh, it can be useful, particularly when you're building a zero to one product. When a system does not exist or capability doesn't exist and you have to think through all the different pieces that that piece of functionality needs to kind of get to MVP. But this also has downsides. When you charter a team to work on a specific system, it's sometimes it's really hard for them to know when to raise, raise their hand and say, I'm done. There's always more work to do, but this is no longer the highest leverage work uh, within the company. We should move on to something else. Uh, and so that's why I actually, whenever possible, prefer the second way of carving up the world, which is mission-based. Um, so whenever possible, I try to map teams to a specific customer persona or a specific customer problem and actually charter that team to attack that problem independent of the code base they need to touch. So maybe they touch the customer experience. Maybe they touch the, the pro experience in a two-sided marketplace. Uh, maybe they touch the, the tools that customer service uses, because that's part of the customer experience as well. Maybe they touch the marketing stack. Um, but when you're really thinking holistically um, about a specific user and a specific problem, that unlocks you to move across the entire product experience and the entire code base um, and create opportunities um, for a better experience that you don't have when you're constrained to one specific area of the product. The third step is to map your people. And this is deliberate to happen after you've carved up the world. Because at the end of the day, the company exists to serve a customer problem, and you have to make sure that you're investing your resources to solve that problem. Um, you don't want to be overly swayed by the people that are in the room. That said, once you've carved up the world, um, then you look at specifically at the, the talent that you have on your team. So how do you distribute them in such a way to take, care, take advantage of the skills they have today? And really importantly, how do you distribute the talent to the work to be done in a way that grows their careers and helps them develop the skills they want to have in the future? 
Um, so I really focus on this, but I do that after deciding how to carve up the world. And the last step in the process is to be ready to blow it all up. Um, I tell people org structures are all terrible. There is no good, perfect org structure. Um, if you optimize for attribute A, you're sacrificing B. If you so optimize for B, you're sacrificing A. And if you try to blend it together and come up with the org structure that evenly balances A and B, you end up being bogged down in a complex matrix and you don't go fast. Um, and that's the worst of both worlds. And so I think about it like sailing a boat. Imagine you want to sail due north, but the wind's coming from the north. You know that if you aim directly at your destination, you'll go too slowly. So instead, you aim northwest. You go that way for a little while, you get some advantages of there, but you're not exactly at your, pointed towards your destination. No big deal. You just tack and go northeast. Um, and making those constant adjustments to your org structure allows you to move really quickly um, and ultimately make progress towards your end destination um, and being willing to blow it all up and change every, call it 12 to 24 months, allows you to take advantage of different org structures and balance them together over time. Wow, those, those four steps were really clear and really helpful, so thank you for sharing that. I also love the final line where you said, all org structures are terrible. You just, <laughs> pick you just your poison. Pick your poison and you're uh, optimizing. A lot of times there's this negative connotation with reorgs, or, but like really you're, you're always making trade-offs. So that, that's super helpful. And the market's constantly changing and your product's constantly changing. If you're not changing the way you organize and divide up the work, then you're, you're using a stale approach. Um, so it's just part of being an agile team is that you get comfortable with change. Um, we, move, we live in a fast-moving industry, and we need to be able to react uh, dynamically. Totally. Talk about changes. I mean, would we have predicted interest rates a year ago or chat GPT? I mean, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What separates the best product teams from the rest? Mm. There's a lot of discussion about you know, strategy and direction. Um, I think the best product teams are ones that execute flawlessly. Uh, I think execution trumps strategy all day long, because you can pivot. Uh, multiple times, but if you're not moving fast, uh, it doesn't matter which direction you're pointed in or how often you pivot. You know, I, uh, I joke with my teams that if I just work really well on two days a year, there's two days a year that we actually set the goals for the, for the various teams, I can just put my, my feet up for the rest of the year. Because I fundamentally believe that if you set the right goals, you give the team the tools to execute flawlessly, and you reward and recognize people who achieve those goals, everything else sort of takes care of itself. The motivation is in, becomes much more intrinsic. But in reality, to set the, the teams up for success, it's a little bit more complicated than just setting goals. It has to be put in a broader context. So the best product teams have a really clear North Star. Where are we going? Why is that the best destination to aim for? And why should, be, why should I be excited about getting there? Yeah. Um, they have a really clear product strategy. So who are the customers that we want to serve? What are their problems? What product uh, will serve those problems and have a really unique value proposition? Third, how do we divide and conquer? The org structure conversation we just had. How does everyone play a unique role to ladder up to reaching that destination? And fourth, the hierarchical goal map. Um, so everyone needs to know what they're aiming for in the near term. Call it the next six months. Um, that accrues toward that longer-term vision. Um, and I really love to set up my teams to have hierarchical goals. So I believe we should have company goals, 
product development goals um, to the extent we're divided into different product pillars, which should pillar level goals. And then every individual pod or team should have really clear goals at that level. And if you do it really well, you can see how each team accomplishing their pod level goals makes the pillar successful, which makes the product development efforts successful, which makes the company successful. Awesome. That's great. So really kind of making sure that there's alignment at the entire org level is super important. Mm -hmm. And clarity. And clarity. So we've talked a little, bit about, a little bit about structuring product teams. And when you think of the role of the CPO, how do you set the vision and priorities to make sure that everyone's aligned uh, to this vision that you've come up with? Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, I think it all starts with that end destination. Um, so it comes from, you start that by understanding your customer problems. So who are you trying to serve? Um, what does success look like in solving their problems? What else is in the market? Uh, what are their alternatives? And how do you want to be better? How do you want to solve their problem in a unique and different way? Um, from that North Star vision, you can just work backwards into product strategies and then short-term goals. You know, as companies become larger, they inevitably introduce more and more process, which can slow down the pace of how they innovate. Yep. So how do you, how do you unlock that? How do you make sure that you still move fast being a you know, prep tech with 1,000 employees. Yeah. Um, I tell my team we're going to invest in <clears throat> minimal viable process. Um, you know, sometimes leadership teams want to impose process on their teams. I try to turn it the other way around and look for what the team, what process the team is asking for. Where are they doing, where are they reinventing the wheel over and over again? Where are they doing low value repeat grunt work? where a process can just sort of systematize a lot of that and get that out of the way for them. Um, and so really focus on the minimum number of processes or systems that, get, uh, that take the, the low value work off the team uh, so they can do the, the, the high value work. You know, one of the, the biggest pitfalls with processes at companies is what I call zombie processes. The process that just kind of runs, um, it's just the way we do things here. Yeah. No one's really thinking about um, what the goal of the process is or how to make it better. Um, and so one of the principles that I use when defining process is that every process has to have a clearly stated business goal and an empowered owner. Um, we don't build process for process sake. We have business needs and sometimes a business need dictates that we have to have a process. Um, the process owner should be the person who thinks about that business need and defines the process to serve that need. As that need evolves, their responsibility is to evolve the process to make sure it's always serving that clear, specific business need. They don't let distraction come in and try to turn one process uh, into something broader that serves multiple needs poorly. They stay laser focused on solving that need, up to and including killing the process. Sometimes the best processes are temporary. They step in to solve a specific business need, that business need goes away, and then you delete the process from the system. You know, at Thumbtack, uh, we just went through a refresh of our operating rhythms. So these are the things that we do on a daily, weekly cadence um, to keep ourselves running smoothly. Um, and we identified three specific business problems to solve with process. The first was understanding, making sure everyone in the, con in the company has shared context about what's going on with the product, uh, what's going on with our business and our customers. So we define something called a business review, where we all look at the numbers together and track trends in the business. 
The second need is really crisp decision making. And so we define a process called product review where we bring in opposing uh, opinions and we make decisions. Um, and we share out to the company what those decisions are and the principles by which we made them so that they can replicate those decision-making frameworks uh, in smaller scales. And the third thing that we need to do um, on a daily, weekly basis is to deliver. And so we define a process called execution review. And the purpose of that uh, forum is to unblock execution as quickly as possible and make sure that if we are stumbling in execution that we learn from that and we don't repeat the same mistakes again. So on a daily and weekly basis, those are the only business objectives that we have identified that require a recurring process. And we have specific owners for each, and I look forward to those owners telling us when it's time to kill the process. Minimum viable process. Yeah. I love that. That's great. And it's, yeah, like sunsetting processes is hard, but if you don't actively do it, you just keep on piling them on. Yeah. And the worst case scenario is when there's an existing process and more folks come in and say, well, this process exists. If I just add a little bit more process to it, I can also scratch this other itch. And you do that three or four times and you get these processes and you just sort of say, what is this? What are we actually trying to accomplish with this? Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. So getting to general career advice yeah. for product management and some miscellaneous questions. You know, looking back at your career, you've been very successful. What advice do you have for a, a senior PMs who want to become leaders similar to yourself? Yeah, um, you know, my advice for folks coming up through their careers varies by its stage. Okay. And uh, for folks earlier in their careers, I actually tell them to focus on filling skill gaps. Um, you know, in those earlier career stages, it's the gaps in your skills that hold you back from the next level. So I encourage folks to, you know, whenever you have a performance review, ask a lot of questions about where, am I, uh, where are my gaps? What is required to do well in this role? Um, where have I not yet demonstrated that skill? And ask for opportunities to be put in environments where you're forced to learn that skill and demonstrate it. Um, being competent in the wide swath of skills necessary for a product builder um, uh, career is necessary to move up to those mid-level uh, roles. Once you get to sort of the mid-level uh, product builder roles, my advice switches and actually becomes the opposite, which is stop worrying about your gaps. You've already sort of built out basic competence in all the areas. You're, you're, you have skills strong enough to not hold you back. Now something very different takes, takes over which is what's your superpower? What's your personal brand? Because to get from mid-level to senior levels, uh, you need to offer something really unique and different to the organization. Um, and you do that by building on your innate strengths, things that you're really good at, and things that are valuable to the company, um, and things that you, that you get energy from. Um, and when you build out those superpowers and you communicate that through your personal brand, um, you get tapped for bigger uh, opportunities when that particular power, superpower is needed. So early in your career, focus on filling any skill gaps. Later in your career, focus on building your superpower uh, and building your personal brand within the organization uh, and more broadly around that superpower. Awesome. That's really cool. I love that distinction that you made between early and, and later career. I think it's going to be really helpful for folks. So before product management, you focused on partnerships and the business side. Um, how did you make that transition, and how do you advise other people that are on the business side to get into more of the product, product management side? Yeah, you know, for a number of years, um, I had a bunch of business roles from financial operations, business operations, supply chain, partnerships, 
And um, I was often asked to move over to product, and I was very reluctant. I didn't see myself in that role. I viewed myself more as a pragmatic, generalist sort of business leader. Um, and I had this false narrative in my head of product managers are sort of unicorns. They're inventing the future. They're, they're looking at decades out. Um, and I didn't really relate to, you know, are they actually driving the business today? Are they, are they, um, are they business leaders? And over the years, I realized there's a variety of different archetypes of product managers. Um, and there's, there's no one-size-fits-all definition of a PM. And what I really found that, uh, that I identified with was the product manager as the closest thing to a general manager type of role in the tech industry below the executive level. Um, and once I kind of connected the dots there, that I could um, solve general customer problems and drive the business through the product role, I realized you know, I can apply a tech company's greatest point of leverage, the strongest tool, which is product development resources, to the problems I was trying to tackle. Um, and that just required me sort of switching seats to the product manager seat. Um, and I realized that the skills that I could bring as a, um, as a generalist uh, would be appreciated in the product management role. The, um, my advice for folks in a similar situation is obviously biased by my own experience. Um, you know, people often ask me, do I need to go back to being, in, you know, let's say they're a manager of a business team. Do I have to go back to being an individual contributor uh, if I want to sort of jump over to the PM ladder? And what I found is, um, and, and my experience was, um, there's a lot of opportunities for business leaders to pair up tightly with a product team. So find a product team that's really closely aligned with the business function that you support. Um, bring unique value to that team. Bring customer insight. Uh, bring um, business acumen, um, bring general problem solving skills and provide a point of leverage for that team. Um, and when a PM role opens up within that org, what I've found is that product teams really value context, trust, um, the ability to solve problems with a variety of different tools, much more than any sort of product management specific training. Um, and so I think if you position yourself as a value-added contributor to a product development team and you're in the right place at the right time, um, you can often make sort of horizontal jumps into product management um, at, at any level. Oh, that's awesome. That's very helpful. A lot of people, I know a lot of business folks want to make that transition over, so that's really helpful. Getting up to our final questions here. What is the future of product management in your view? Uh, any trends that PMs should keep abreast of? A couple are top of mind for me right now. Um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of reference the fact that we're in a bumpy time for, for tech right now. Um, we came off a decade plus run of sort of crazy time with crazy resources, um, incredibly long investment horizons. Um, but the market's shifted. And today, um, the market's telling us to get back to basics. Solve customers' problems today. Deliver real tangible value right now. Um, and so, a trend that I think PMs should be aware of is for the next several years, what companies will value is pragmatic solutions um, that drive the business much more than crazy far out future thinking. Of course, PMs will still explore new technologies, but we'll do it through a lens of solving today's problems, not just uh, experimenting the lab somewhere. Um, a second big trend that I'm very uh, tuned into right now is that increasingly 
product and technical talent is getting distributed geographically much more than it's ever been. Um, this is creating new models for operating, which requires a new set of skills. You know, I'm not particularly excited about some of the hybrid models that are being toyed, uh, played with today. Um, companies are still hiring within a geographic area around a physical office. Um, they're sort of having some people come in some days of the week, but um, it's sort of organic and you end up with a lot of meetings being hybrid meetings where some people are physically together, some people are on video. Um, and it creates a bunch of new challenges that have to be navigated. Um, in contrast to Thumbtack, we've sort of invested in a remote first model where on a day-to-day -day basis, we actually hire all over the country. Um, our day-to-day -day meetings are all on Zoom. We, we build our rituals and our no norms of operating around that remote first environment. And then we're really deliberate about coming together face-to-face -to -face frequently and using those face-to-face -face <clears throat> um, times to do what face-to-face -face work is uniquely suited for, which is building rapport, open brainstorming, getting to know each other on a personal level. Um, and so you know, those kind of models uh, and thinking through those kind of models can help create you know, new working models in this new environment. Um, <clears throat> but regardless of what, whether you're in an office, in any sort of hybrid model or remote only, um, these are going to require these new working models are going to require new skills, and the, the product leaders that that rise to the top will be those that can experiment with new ways of working and um, and bring teams together regardless of the environment. That's yeah, it's um, quite a lot to hear about because in the news you're seeing pe companies forcing people to come back, and if it's hybrid, how does that? There's challenges around that, so it's great to know that. Thumbtack is really kind of going into full remote and working through those. And how do you make that make that work for everybody? Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating. We're essentially running a really fascinating human resources experiment right now as an as an industry. So I'm excited to see how that plays out. Awesome. Um, do you have any closing remarks that you wanted to, to share as we close this out? Yeah, you know, one thing that's top of mind for me right now is we're in a really turbulent time as a technology industry, and I've heard chatter about you know should should technology leaders move out of technology? Or is now a good time to build your career in the tech space? And what I want to remind folks of is new technology has always been one of the biggest levers for advancing humanity. Um, so regardless of any short-term economic uh, turbulence, um, I always tell people, if you want to advance humanity, uh, improve the quality of lives of, of lots of people at scale, it's always a good time to build your career um, building great technology products and building great technology companies. Wow, PJ, this has been a mini MBA in a conversation. <laughs> I don't know how long it's been, but my brain is fried in a good sense. <laughs> really kind of listening to all those insights around you know, hiring great PMs, on structuring product teams, and your advice for leaders in general um, has been really insightful for me. And I know for everyone that listens to the CPL Mastery podcast, we are thankful for, for you coming onto the podcast. And it's nice to be back in person in your Thumbtack office and really appreciate your time today. Thanks Thank for coming much. and thanks for having me. Really appreciate okay. it. Thank you.